Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've always been fascinated by the human voice, which experts say is as unique to each person as their fingerprint. In these podcasts, we celebrate the human voice in all its wonderfully diverse forms, young and old, different accents and cultural contexts. Writers sometimes struggle to find their own voice, but you can kind of tell when someone is speaking from a place of authenticity and integrity. That's when I most love listening to voices. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. I thought that was a very select class of people, that somehow you must be knighted a philanthropist or something, that you certainly had to grow up in it, or you lived in a certain zip code. But the vast majority of Americans donate time or money to charity, and the bolder giving movement asks us to give more. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Charitable donations fluctuate somewhat with the economy and what people feel they can give. But roughly two-thirds of American households do contribute money or time or both to charity. The top recipients are religious groups, educational institutions, and human service providers. How much to give and where was a question facing Christopher Ellinger, a college student back in 1980 at age 24. He inherited $250,000 from his grandfather with the promise of an additional $300,000 upon his grandfather's death. It was clear that that amount of money could not only do something to help us, but could do a lot to help other people. So we decided early on that we were going to give a chunk of that away, and I knew nothing about philanthropy, so I started going to conferences. Christopher and his wife Anne decided to proceed cautiously with their windfall. They lived then in a low-income neighborhood of West Philadelphia and were sensitive to the human need they saw around them, so they began making connections with other donors. There was this huge world of philanthropy that was very exciting, where there are people who are really putting their money where their hearts were. I think it was about five years that you promised yourself, okay, I'm not going to make any major decisions for five years. I'm going to just really, really think about how can I be responsible with this money and really make the best use of it for our lives and the wider world. Part of that was this project of interviewing 50 people about, did you regret giving so much? There were some people who said, oh, yeah, we have some important lessons of how we would do this differently like we would take more time and be more thoughtful and get more people involved in the process. But not a single person said they regretted giving away as much money as they did and being as bold as they were. The findings from the interviews with charity givers were ultimately published in an award-winning 1993 book entitled We Gave Away a Fortune. It profiled donors who decided to contribute at least 20% of their income to charities. That was a several-year process of interviewing 50 people and writing a book about it before I was willing to make a decision how much of my assets I was going to give away. And I ended up giving away, or Anne and I decided that we were going to give away 50% 
So we're still keeping 50%. Their giving priorities have focused on arts for social change, including a theater group they operate, strengthening nonprofit organizations by providing technical assistance, and various initiatives to educate other donors and engage them in giving more to charities. As Christopher's grandfather neared the end of his life, the couple began thinking hard about how to handle their expected second inheritance. We both decided uh, to talk to his grandfather to say, instead of leaving the second inheritance of 300000 to us personally, would he put it into uh, a charitable structure that then we could have the joy of giving that money away? And he ended up changing his will the day before he died. To accommodate to that. To accommodate that, which um, now with the perspective of a 56-year-old, I feel a lot more impressed that he was willing to to show that amount of love and trust of this really young grandson to, to do I was that. Very, I was very touched that my grandfather did that because he had worked really hard as a young man to make money because he grew up poor and thought of money as a way to take care of his family. Because it wields so much influence over our lives, money is a delicate topic for many families. Being financially tight can certainly cause some kinds of headaches, but acquiring money often presents its own set of problems. A study of lottery winners, for example, showed that for some, instant affluence can overstress families and sometimes lead to a breakup. Anne Ellinger. I think like lots of uh, partners or spouses of people who have sudden wealth, I, I really didn't experience that money as mine. You know, I had a big barrier up about it, like that's your money and um, whatever you want to do with it is okay and don't even talk to me very much about it. I just want to live like a normal life, a normal person. Thank you very much. And it really was a decade-long uh, wooing process that Christopher involved me in making decisions about it and helping me, especially as, again, kind of typical for women to be a little bit more disempowered about money. And, you know, so I look at bank statements and stock and bond portfolio reports and just start falling asleep, gradually um, being coached to feel able to um, take in the information and feel enfranchised to make decisions, which was important that we, we did it together. So it took a while. Yep. But why not do what most people would do, which is regarded as a nest egg down payment for a nice home and for your retirement as opposed to let's set up some instruments by which we give this away? For me, it was very casual. It really was as simple as we have more than enough. Why would we want to have even more than that? We have plenty. Let's do something great with it. It, it was not even a big deal. Looking back, I feel really glad that we gave away the second inheritance before we got it because it's so easy to get used to a certain amount of money as being normal and safe. And so if we're just deciding to give that away before it enters into our personal account, then it's already freed up and it's, we feel comfortable with what we have. So we've been encouraging other people to do the same
Today, the Ellingers live in a comfortable suburban home a few houses down from Spy Pond in a middle-class neighborhood of Arlington, Massachusetts, outside Boston. They have a son in his early 20s and derive what they call a modest income from their work promoting charitable donations and from their other passion, the drama group known as True Story Theater. They've made a choice to lead lives not based on excessive consumerism. Christopher Ellinger. We get all these messages in the media news that you never have enough. So whether you actually don't have enough and are scraping by, or you've gotten used to a certain lifestyle that you feel like you have to sustain, but still you're feeling pinched by, or even if you have way more than enough, but something could happen in the market, which of course it will at some point, but there are many different ways to deal with risk. And the ways that we feel are really healthy are to, yes, have some financial reserve, but also to invest in community and skills and physical health. There are many other things that are just as important, if not more important, than financial reserves for your security. In 2007, the Ellingers launched an informal network of donors called Boulder Giving. Its mission is to entice people to dig deeper and give more to the charities of our choice. Citing a fairly consistent level of average annual giving for American families, 2 to 3 percent of income, Boulder Giving beckons us to take a quantum leap and donate more. And they urge something else, talk openly about charitable donations, because it may inspire others. Certainly, philanthropy has increased our sense of connection to the community, a sense of being an active citizen and participant in the world, instead of, I was looking at my own parents who really care deeply about poverty and injustice in the world, but felt um, terribly powerless in a lot of ways. Because they were of modest means? It wasn't just the, the means, but their attitude about what they could, what kind of impact they could have. And philanthropy, philanthropy is the love of humanity, and it's expressed through giving both money and life energy. And the most powerful ways that we've been philanthropic have combined both of those. It's not just been writing a check to things that we care about, but it's being actively involved in them and doing everything we can to help those projects be successful. His work to increase generosity has caused Christopher Ellinger to think deeply about the structure of charitable foundations in America, which in recent times have given away more than $40 billion per year. To maintain their tax-exempt status, grant-making foundations are required to pay out 5% of assets per year, and that can include administrative costs of the charity itself. As a result, most of a foundation's wealth often sits in the stock market rather than being given to needy causes. Christopher feels that in some cases, charities should reconsider their strategy. If we're really looking at maximizing the impact of this foundation's purpose, a charitable purpose, it might make sense to give away all this money in a time-limited way. So 
but could be the life of the person who set it up, or could be 10 years, or whatever the, the goal is. And that's called a sunset clause of a foundation. And we really believe in Boulder Giving that it makes sense for trustees of a foundation to have a serious discussion about whether it makes sense to sunset or what the purposes of those assets are over time. The obvious question about that is, won't the money, if it's not all given away, grow and therefore yield more money over time to give away? There's opportunity costs in that over time, some social problems get significantly greater, greater than the amount of money is growing. And, and they're thereby costlier to address. Costlier and potentially intractable over time. So if you're looking at environmental problems, how do you deal with climate change 20 years from now if we have a 20-year window? In their work with the Boulder Giving Initiative, the Ellingers continue to compile stories of extraordinary givers, and not always donors with big bank accounts. In one case, a high school math teacher in his 20s gives half of his salary to combat poverty, what he hopes will be a lifelong commitment. Anne Ellinger. We've tried to generalize from the stories, and we really see six main factors. So some people are very motivated by their religious faith, some by a sense of social fairness, of feeling, uh, how do I help more equity in the world, and it's not really fair that I have way more than I need. There's people where it's a passion for a particular cause. It might be something that affected their family or um, their life growing up, but it's you know, there's a particular cause that they're passionate about. For others, they're giving big because they have a, just a vision of bigger impact. And without stepping forward in the amount that they're giving uh, of their time and money, uh, they won't see that impact. There's some for whom simplicity is a real motivating force, both keeping their own life simple by having it not swallowed up uh, in the dealings with money, um, and also the fact that they live simply frees up so much more to give, and others, it's just the way they have fun. They just feel like there is nothing more joyful I could think of doing. discussing the reasons people donate to charity and an initiative known as Boulder Giving, which asks us to consider giving more. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, please visit humanmedia.org. One participant in Boulder Giving is Kathy LeMay of Florence, Massachusetts. I grew up in the oldest mill town in the United States. Um, grew up, was part of that constituency of kind of invisible poor white people and grew up on welfare and food banks and food stamps. We have a lot of evictions. Um, my father died of a, an inoperable brain tumor when I was a kid and my mom raised me and my two sisters on $6,000 a year as a bank teller. And we were that group of people who didn't have money to contribute to the United States in a consumer way. 
And as I got older, I started to realize how confused we had gotten between democracy and consumerism. That somehow if you were spending money, you were a great American. And if you weren't, you were tapping the system. And we volunteered all the time. And so I didn't understand why my mother and sisters and I weren't seen as really great Americans. That kind of surprised me. Kathy LeMay is what you might call a firecracker. She describes herself as a global activist. She's worked with women survivors in the war zone of Yugoslavia. The author of The Generosity Plan, she focuses on women's rights and relief of hunger and poverty. She's been a phenomenal fundraiser, attracting hundreds of millions of donated dollars. Her consulting group, known as Raising Change, advises large corporations, universities, and other nonprofits about charitable giving. I didn't even know the term philanthropy until I went to college and heard people start saying it. You know, I was the person who at events hung coats of donors and gave them name tags and did all of that. And whatever happened in those other rooms, I didn't know, but that was okay because I was busy doing the activist frontline work. And I did nonprofit stuff forever and and worked in post-war and post-genocide zones in my 20s and really working for women and, you know, never made more than $35,000 or $40,000 a year, and that was fine. No one in my family made money, so it it wasn't a motivator in life. There was nothing growing up about, you would be successful if. There was never a dollar amount attached to that. It's if you led a significant life, if what you did was meaningful, if you gave back, and if you contributed to the greater good. And that was... I was raised under that completely. In our conversation, Kathy LeMay was unusually open about her personal finances, past and present. She said she earned about 180000 in the previous year. Kathy says she supports her aging low-income parents and her 10 cats and donates a total of between 30 and 40 percent of her income. Because I had flexed the muscle of giving since I was 12, 13 years old and had always been giving any money I had, allowance, etc., it was easy to give away so much of my income. It didn't seem like that big of a deal because it was just a percentage of what I had always been doing. So it, then I just started to realize for financial planners, they, they thought I was being irresponsible. And I remember once going to write my first $10,000 check, which was enormous. I think maybe that year I made 80000 and I was writing, and I've written a bunch of checks, but this was it, like writing 10000 right? I have family members who don't even make $10,000 a year, and here I am writing a check for it. And I actually think people have a profound and deep desire to give and be generous But the truth is, we are told, if you give too much money away, you are irresponsible. Kathy LeMay has provocative ideas about charitable giving. She believes the industry of financial planners can leave people straitjacketed in excessive caution. Most of us, she says, are far too conservative in deciding how much to donate and that our thinking about charity is often clouded by a jumble of emotions. Through her work life and in her personal life, she's had years to consider what holds people back from giving more to the charitable causes they already believe in. Terror. People's absolute terror. That they will not be okay. That they will go without, that other people around will have to take care of them, or that they will be a burden. And people very much deeply believe that they can be held in a cocoon of assets that will make it so that they don't have terror and they're not afraid. 
And yet what I have found is people who have a lot more money than me and have seem to have it kind of stockpiled in places actually seem more afraid of life than me. And I was stunned by that because I thought, particularly as a woman, once I had enough money, that would liberate me. And what I'm particularly noticing as women accumulate wealth, it's not everything they thought it was going to be. And they're actually starting... Emotional strings attached? Emotional strings attached. They're starting to become victims of the resource that was supposed to liberate women. Because you hold on to it. Your life becomes the business of managing your money. You think about it quite a bit when, in fact, what it's supposed to do is liberate you to live a life rather than liberate you to think about it all the time. So I think if we don't look at the psychological issues around money, people can look at percentages and say, sure, realistically, I could give away 1% more next year and nothing would happen. But something stops people from doing that, and I, and I actually do think it's terror. And there's, what does it mean to say, what if I were made a decision to, to be less afraid? I have a different temperament than you, Kathy, in that my family was mixed in its financial resources. My parents didn't have very much. Christopher Ellinger. I tend to be more cautious by temperament, and so... A financial plan actually has been really helpful for me Mm -hmm. in thinking through how much can I afford to give away. Mm -hmm. And besides terror, which I think does affect a lot of people, even at an unconscious level, there's also just confusion about how much can people afford to give, how much money do people need if they do want to keep enough money for their retirement or for long-term goals. So having even a very simple financial plan that people review periodically as we, as we have has been incredibly reassuring to me <laughs> to free me up to say, okay, I planned to spend this money out with these, this particular goal to support our son and not more than that. And I'm fine with us giving out the rest of our assets having it go down to zero by the time that we project that we're going to die. And of course, it's just a plan. Things will change in the world and we'll have to change also. But it's been one of the tools that's allowed me as a cautious person to say, I'm really going to maximize my giving while still taking really good care of us as a family. Through the Boulder Giving Movement, Ann Ellinger has a lot of conversations with people seeking an answer to the question of what is a sensible amount of charity to give. A traditional religious response is to tithe, to allocate 10% of one's annual income for charity. The average American household gives less than a third of that based on IRS figures. What factors should guide us in deciding how much to set aside for oneself and family and how much to give outside the family? Ann Ellinger believes many of us need help in clearly thinking this through. We often are coaching people saying like, well, what, what is the money for? What are you wishing this money to enable in your young adult's life? So if you want to help them buy a house, do you mean buy it outright or 
you know, towards a 20% mortgage? Are you talking about a $300,000 house or a $10 million house? I'm talking to like wealthy people about like, what is their image? If you want to help them uh, get an education, are you talking about paying through Harvard Medical School in full or four years at a state college? Like just having people get very specific about what is it you want money both to enable and what you don't want it to enable. Is that because you find that there can be a vagueness in the way people think Absolutely. this through? Absolutely. People are completely vague, and so there's never enough. It's not only fear, but it's also just not becoming specific about, well, what will enable your child? You know, Do you want them to be able to have one year of unemployment where they're uh, looking around to see what they can do? Most people will say, well, I don't want my my young people to be able to not work forever, and they really underestimate that. Let's talk about non-financial philanthropy, the kind of generosity that occurs in everyday acts of kindness and words of kindness, a generosity of spirit. Do you strive for that? Yeah, I, I would say for me, that the generosity of my spirit is more important than my money. Kathy LeMay. How people feel after they interact with me matters more than the checks that I write. Because I worked at so many nonprofits, I got checks from people who weren't generous of spirit and who weren't kind and who were sometimes shaming and made you jump through hoops. And, um, and it was, don't blow it with the donor, don't blow it with the donor. And there was so much anxiety because this person held the purse strings. And so many people could go without if you made a mistake. What terror. Talk about terror, right? So how, for me, how I move through the world, how people feel after they interact with me is, a, for me, a greater indicator of my successes. Am I being giving and generous? Or am I withholding or shaming or cold or all of those things? Who cares what checks you write if you make someone feel lousy? It doesn't, it seems like it negates it, quite honestly. So, you know, I remember my mother once said to me when I had someone say something terribly rude about my class and, and it was hurtful. And I remember she said, just remember that you don't have your dignity if you rob someone else of theirs. And kind of what does it mean to be a generous soul for me is a bigger question. And then how I spend my time, treasure, and talent follows the answer to that question. And what does it mean for you to be a generous soul? Um, it's so personal. I think it's only I know it at the end of every day if I did it. Um, did, I, did I put other people before me without being a doormat? Um, did I go out of my way for people? Did I slow down? Um, driving here, there was a, uh, we were at a light and there was a man who said, if you don't have money, then could I have a smile? And I rolled down my window and, and gave him some cash and smiled and said, would both work today? <laughs> and he said, sometimes I don't even get the smile. And he said, in your smile, that would have been better than the money. And though that for me is a measure of a life. Um, not just what plaques or, or thank you letters I'll get or my name in a newsletter, that's fine, um, but how I interact with people who, um, you know, what's that great quote? The measure of a person is how you interact with someone who can do nothing for you. Mm. 
you know, and also another great quote, people will not remember what you said or did, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And what I hope in the measure of my life is, is that people will say, you know, she was feisty and fierce and unapologetic, but without robbing someone else of their own identity or space in the world. Um, that people would always know that I respected them and I respect the heck out of myself and always will. And that I was here to shake things up for a little bit. And if I could shake things up a little bit, then, then that would have worked out. Kathy LeMay, along with Ann Ellinger and Christopher Ellinger, participants in Boulder Giving. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Boulder Giving, is Humankind Program number 179. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.